and welcome to the one and only Star Wisdom Sunday. Thank you for tuning in. We know you do have choices on this fine Sunday. Many people can live stream on YouTube. It's a fact. But thank you for choosing, like I said, the one and only Starry Wisdom Sunday. I am here in my new tool shirt. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We did see Tool on Halloween, and it was good. Thank you for coming. We are here to talk about King Brand and other things, uh, whatever you guys want to talk about, of course. You set the agenda. That's the exciting thing about the Q&A. You guys get to choose. So we had a good time last night. We had a little patron-only live stream as I smoothed my wig frizz, wig frizz out. Might not have done that beforehand. In any case, yeah, we had a fun little patron-only live stream. If you are a patron, then you could have tuned in last night to check it out. And in fact, uh, if you are a patron, the link that I sent you still works, so you could actually go and watch the unlisted stream. But it'll be available for everyone pretty soon. We did it on uh, Quinn's channel, Ideas of Ice and Fire. And he's going to edit it down and then uh, put it out as a full discussion. We hit a bunch of topics. It wasn't just us ranting about D&D and the notorious confessional Q&A interview. Uh, we did cover the... The Q and A, and in fact, Quinn and I went back and listened to the full audio of that interview in order to make sure that uh, they weren't being taken out of context. Of course, the first word we heard of this Q and A was from that notorious Twitter thread, which made such a big uh, splash, if you will. And uh, there were some claims by Watchers on the Wall and others that uh, the interview was taken out of context. So, in the interest of not putting my foot in my mouth. I went back and listened to it, and so did Quinn. And uh, while it's true that the Twitter thread is definitely not what you'd call unbiased, I think for the most part it is fairly encapsulating the subtext of what's going on. Uh, you know, there's a few disclaimers, and we talked about it. We added some context, and you know, in any case, we talked about that. We talked about uh, House of the Dragon coming up, Blood Moon getting canceled. We talked about some of the exciting things that are going to be coming. In the winds of winter, so all in all, it was a very good stream. It was lots of fun. It always is. Uh, when Quinn and I get together, of course, uh, he's the one that people ask me to work with the most, I'd say. So that'll be coming your way. Uh, like I said, if you're a patron, you can check out the link on Patreon. In any case, that'll be on uh, the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel after Quinn edits that down in a week. And he's also got a cool video coming on demons and daemons, like Damon Targaryen. Anyways, uh, so today we are here to... Talk about King Brand. So, guys, how did uh, how did you feel about the King Brand three episode? I put my heart into that one, guys. I worked very hard to get that one out. It was a ton of fun, but it was definitely the longest video I've done. It was a full hour. I did a little more work on uh, you know uh, visual effects and going and finding out some you know digging up some really good art. We did classic art. We had some more current artists. We've uh, we've raided Deviant Art and Art Station pretty thoroughly, and we got, of course, I uh, believe strongly in giving artists credit. And if you look on the video, there is a caption under every single image telling you who did it and what it's called. And then, of course, on the comments on the YouTube video itself, there are links to all of our artists' web pages, and we encourage you to check it out. There is just a lot of really good stuff. Um, and then, of course, I also mixed in all the classic Prometheus and Garden of Eden stuff. That was always fun. So lots of good art in the King Brand 3, but mostly this is, you know, 
my attempt to wrestle the very esoteric symbolism of Bran and the fire of the gods, God King stuff, and try to explain to your average viewer or reader how that matters, how it's more than just fun Odin trivia, and how it actually has something to do with the plot. And you guys let me know when the glasses are driving you crazy. Um, it's an experiment, so... In any case, King Bran, the idea of, you know, he's, he possesses the fire of the gods, so he should be king. Uh, I, I definitely got to the why in the video. However, that's something that I really want to expand on, and I think that's where I want to start today. Uh, so I, I was talked about the idea that, okay, so if it was just a matter of being a powerful wizard, you know, Euron could be the chosen one, because he's obviously reaching for the fire of the gods. He's sort of the alt-green-seer figure. But Euron's not trying to help anybody. He's only trying to help himself. And that's not the kind of god-king that we want, of course. And so the whole idea with Bran is that Bran has to use his power to, quote-unquote, help people. You know, if you think about the Prometheus myth, and this is why I some of you guys mentioned Icarus. Like, oh, why didn't I bring up Icarus, you know, with Bran climbing the tower and getting struck down? It's because the themes, I feel like, match more closely with Prometheus, meaning that Prometheus stole the fire of the gods specifically to help mankind. He created mankind's physical form in one myth, and then he brought them fire so they could advance in another myth. So it's 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 all about being that link. Uh, if you look at the serpent in the Garden of Eden, he is doing that light bringer role of bringing knowledge, expanding the consciousness of mankind by encouraging them to eat of the fruit. And so that is the, really the, the key defining element that we're going for here, is bringing the fire of the gods to mankind. So let's think about how Bran can do that, right? Bran, obviously, is, he possesses all the knowledge of the Weirwood Net. And he possesses, that, that means the knowledge of all of history, as well as deep magical truths about the White Walkers, Green Seeing, and Westeros, things like that. Uh, but if you... Let's let's move past the idea of Bran helping to end the Long Night. I think we all know that his Green Seer magic is going to be key. George will probably have fun with uh, revealing some of the ancient lore through Bran's visions, and some of that ancient knowledge will be crucial. You know, I'm fingers crossed. Maybe we'll get Bran witnessing the original Moon Meteor event, aka the Hammer of the Waters, and we'll see you know a fiery thing falling from heaven and a great explosion or something like that. But uh, beyond beyond those deep uh, meteor fantasies that I have, we, uh, you know, Bran's going to use his knowledge to help defeat the others. The, all that ancient lore, uh, whatever he learns about their origins, it will no doubt play a bigger role in defeating the others than we had on the show. We've talked about that. But let's move past that. Let's talk about the idea of Bran being king. Um, you know, a couple of people were talking about it on Twitter and somebody was challenging me a little bit about, you know, well, Brand, it just doesn't make any sense for Bran to be king because he's a boy, he doesn't have much political training, and he's from the north, so why should he be king of the Seven Kingdoms? How's that going to work and make sense? And obviously on the TV show, didn't make a ton of sense. So, let's think about this, all right? Again, set the, set the others aside. You have a broken and destroyed Westeros, and Bran becomes king somehow. He gets chosen king. Everybody realizes... You know, he's got this this knowledge, which is useful. Now, I, I, the more I think about it, the more I have gravitated towards the idea that the entire hive mind, the entire green seer collective consciousness that is in the Weirwood Net 
is going to get downloaded into Bran. And I think the show kind of kind of showed us that. You saw Bran do this kind of download thing. As Bloodraven is dying, he he's out. You know, eyes rolled back into his head for an extended time, several minutes, and he's seeing a lot of important weirdwood net knowledge. And then once uh, Mira Reed successfully drags him back, you know, through the forest, Cold Hands saves them, or Cold Hands Benjen, and they get to the wall. Bran finishes the download. He puts his hand on the frozen weirwood tree face, and he finishes the download. He finishes the Tower of Joy sequence. Um, and so then now, after that is when he starts talking about how, you know, how he's not Bran anymore. Well, I'm not really. Um, to me, he always <laughs> sounds a little bit like George Harrison, uh, like sort of just like, hmm, got that classic British kind of monotone thing going on. But in any case, uh, that's when he starts talking about himself as the three-eyed crow and not just Bran. He remembers what it was like to be Bran. So the show is really showing us that Bran has been absorbed into this whole three-eyed crow uh, you know, consciousness. It's inside of Bran. Uh, and so basically what we've got, I think the, the equivalent to that in the books will be just what I'm talking about, where you know, Bran will be the last green seer um, Blood Raven probably will die. We'll get some sort of a scene in the cave when they're escaping. Blood Raven will probably die. And I think that, as I've been talking about, the whole whole idea of mankind being a green seer is sort of an abomination. They're basically skin changing the trees. And um, you know, that's just not really like I don't think the trees want want to be skin changed. Uh, I think the trees are equivalent to whites like the undead kind, and that's the whole joke with the white tree wordplay. And essentially, I think the tree consciousness has been carved out or minimized or hollowed out, much in the way when Bran goes into Hodor, Hodor's consciousness is like in a little pit. It's like cowering in the corner. And I think the tree, the tree knowledge is either, it's either cowering in the corner or it's has been expelled as the others or it's it's gone altogether. And so I think part of the solution for fixing these original sins is going to be to get mankind out of the weirwood net, which means all of the hive mind consciousness getting downloaded into poor little Bran's brain. So in the books, I believe that Bran will be kind of basically a repository for the entire weirwood net. So now let's think about him being king and helping everybody, if you will. I'm helping. Thanks, Ralph. He has the knowledge of all of history. He's got the most extensive knowledge of history that you could possibly imagine. There's no better tool as a ruler than to be able to flip through your Rolodex and see what worked and what didn't. And so that is already a huge advantage. Um, I would expect since he's young, we will see a kind of council of advisors. Uh, as you know, the Dance of the Dragons has a ton of foreshadowing for this. And at the end of the Dance of the Dragons, uh, there is a broken boy king who takes the throne and he has a council of advisors there's very strong brand parallels so i think that's what we're going to get and i think a lot of those advisors are set up to be women interestingly if you look at the sort of rise of leadership in the books you can see that there's a lot of women gaining power um Ariane martel in the reach um the tyrells sansa uh, asha Greyjoy. so there's, I think we're going to have a very interesting council of advisors and people that we trust, Sam, obviously, folks like that. And so I think we're going to feel like Westeros is in pretty good hands. So we've got this council of advisors. We've got Bran uh, with, you know, all of this knowledge of history in his head. 
And I think the final step will be that it's very likely that if Bran is going to be the last green seer, he may also be the last king. Or at least I think this is a, a, a good idea that's that's in play. And essentially, just in the way that Bran will be the last green seer and he's transitioning man away from being able to use the weirwood knowledge to do, you know, all kinds of things, potentially bad things like causing the hammer of the waters or creating the others or whatever else. Bran essentially will be transitioning Westeros again, maybe this is an idea away from monarchy. I think the stage is set. We, you almost saw it crumble. Like the seven Kings almost disappeared entirely on the TV show in that great council. Sansa stands up and she's like, um, actually the North, really only submitted because of the dragons. You guys don't have dragons. Peace out. Uh, the Iron Islands should have said the same thing. They have no reason to be ruled by the Seven Kingdoms. They're geographically separate, culturally separate. They don't have the same religion. Iron Islands don't care about currency or anything like that. So if, I mean, realistically, if, if a similar situation plays out in the books, the Iron Islands would also stand up and be like, yeah, peace out. Then certainly after Dorne would be like looking around, be like, uh, yeah, peace out. We're Dorne, like unbowed, unbent, unbroken, right? So they're gone. So really what you've got now is the Riverlands and the Crownlands and the Vale and the Reach. That's what's left of the Seven Kingdoms. And the Vale is going to be under control of Sansa. So if Sansa is the queen of the north, she could very well also rule the Vale and, oh, also the Riverlands because she's a Tully. And so Sansa could be set up to be queen of all three. And again, hat tip Ball the Bard, uh, who is listening on the drive home, but not commenting. Um, yes, I believe the, I think she's the one who pointed out to me that Sansa is set up to not only rule the North, but also potentially the Riverlands and the Vale. And now we're just down to the Reach and the Crownlands, the King's Landing. And there, that's the most geographically contiguous area there. So you can see the stage is set for the seven kingdoms to basically scatter to the wind. There could, you know, Bran is the logical person to oversee such a transition because, hello, he almost certainly can't have children. I don't want to go into that whole biology discussion again, but, you know, the people in the books think that Bran can't have kids. And if, if that's the case and he can't, then he is the perfect last king. He's got all this knowledge, but he's got, you know, no motive to to for self-aggrandizement that we've seen, and he doesn't have an heir. So to me, that's it's all set up to see a, a dispersion of power, dispersion of knowledge. We'll be writing down all the stuff that that uh, Bran took out of the weirwood net. So that's that's how I see King Bran playing out as far as like politically and logistically. Um, obviously, I've spent most of my time talking about magic and symbolism. Bran is a summer king. Bran is the fire of the gods, possessor. Bran is a powerful green seer and ward king that's going to fight with the wolves and the ravens during the long night and all that stuff. So I think uh, that's it. There you can see the whole picture. Um, I don't know if he'll live a thousand years in seven. Probably not. I think he'd have to be hooked up to the weirwood net in order to be able to do that. So likely he will have a normal lifespan. Uh, but like I said, no kids. So that's my guess. I mean, it, like, what's the what's the alternative? Bran is just king, and then the book just ends, kind of like the show ends, and Bran is king. Like, I don't know. I think George is going to explore this idea. Like, what's Aragorn's tax policy, right? The famous, you know, not necessarily even a critique, but just George Martin wondering about where Tolkien didn't go. George Martin is interested in some of these logistics 
you know, how does King Aragorn rule? So I think that we will see not just Bran sitting at the table for one scene with a sort of ad hoc uh, council or whatever. Uh, Bron, you know, Sir Bron, Lord of the Reach, Master of Coin, you know, probably not. In any case, I do expect George to spend a little bit more time showing us Bran as a ruler. And I think the dream of spring could very easily equate to uh, a dream of democracy, if you will, or at least something a little bit less like a monarchy. I mean, we're really going back to regional monarchies or regional. I mean, everybody could choose their own form of rule. It does vary a little bit from region to region. So, And just a reminder that the king's moot is, or the queen's moot, as, as you might call it, is the most democratic thing in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And that's why I love it. All right, so there you go. I'm going to look in the chat here, and I see a few questions coming through. How will the maesters, Chow AJ asks, how will the maesters react to King Bran? Will their, word be turn will their world be turned upside down? No, actually, I think the maesters will come in handy if you think about it, because Bran is, while he's a wizard king, he's also the last wizard king, and his whole deal is to like take all this WeirdWoodNet knowledge and write it down, because we can't access the WeirdWoodNet anymore. So he is guiding a transition away from magic, uh, that the maesters want. And I think with Sam obviously influencing the Citadel, uh, then, you know, I think we're set up to use the Citadel for, you know, for a pretty useful purpose. So that they will come in handy. Uh, let's talk symbolism here. There's something occurred to me the other day. The high tower with the maesters running around uh, at the Citadel there in Old Town, it's kind of like the Weirwood itself. I have to, oh gosh, who was it? This somebody something that somebody threw out in the chat about the gray rats. This might have been Ball the Bard again. So the Maesters have the gray rat symbolism, right? And they sort of scurry around the citadel, kind of like the Ratatoska rat on Yggdrasil. And you guys know that the white high tower with its crown of flame sigil at the top is a great weirwood symbol. White tree, crown of red leaves, and there is a lot of knowledge and sort of palantir symbolism, far sight symbolism at the top of the tower. And so you've got these, the Knights of the Mind, the gray rats sort of scurrying around. And I think that that is essentially equivalent to the idea of, you know, green seers and children of the forest managing and tending the weirwood knowledge. And so I think the, the Citadel is set to replace the weirwoods in a sense as the repository of knowledge with people that sort of scurry around and dispense it. So I think Bran will be very, uh, very closely involved with Old Town and with uh, with the Maesters, I could see him sort of maybe reforming uh, reforming the Maesters a little bit and repurposing them just a tiny bit. So we'll see. I, I think that'll be all pretty good. Um, there is going to be some Maester civil war though before that, guys, because you know Archmaester Marwyn is trying to help Danny with the dragons. Uh, other Maesters may be involved in plots and have agendas. So we could see some fireworks before that. But at the end, I think I think Sam and and Bran will be set to. Uh, to uh, reshape that whole deal. And to uh, go back to Chow AJ, yes, the Maester's world will be turned upside down by the Long Night events because it will be an undeniable event of you know magical goings-on, if you will. And Euron's going to start some shit in Old Town, too, at, at the Hightower. So their world's going to be turned upside down before King Bran. By the time King Bran comes along, I think they're going to think he's pretty reasonable. Will Bran have anything to do with killing, saving, killing or saving the dragons, or will they be gone by the time he gets to King's Landing? That's a great question. It's a great question. Um, we Mythheads have wondered about the idea of Bran. Well, not just we Mythheads. Everybody's talked about the idea of Bran's skin changing a dragon. We Mythheads have wondered about Bran um, 
maybe taking down the ice or whited dragon uh, with his mind. Or, you know, I don't think we'll see Bran pitted directly against Daenerys' dragons and using warg powers to counter Daenerys. In fact, I think we're headed for more Bran and Daenerys teamwork than what we saw on the show. And I think this is actually going to be a very big missing piece to making sense of the events at Winterfell. Thank you, Justin Curl, for the super chat. I'm waiting for a live stream on hot pie symbolism. Um, it's coming. It's coming, Justin. I'm working on it. So I think that I, I, I was thinking about this this morning. I do want to talk about Danny and Bran a little bit because I think that part of the problem of the ending is that these pieces really just don't fit well together, meaning Danny and the dragons and her quest for the Iron Throne of Westeros that's been developing the whole story. And then on the other hand, Bran as a king and as like the green seers sort of taking revenge or setting things right or whatever. So I think that there's a couple ways that they will have more interconnection. I think that Daenerys will... I'm really hoping that she's going to do some weird net stuff because you guys know that Nissa Nissa, I have a very, I have a lot invested and a lot of research done on Nissa Nissa being some sort of child of the forest character. Danny is a direct echo of Nissa Nissa in so many ways. And I really would like to see her interact with the weird net. Um, that could be like Bran using the weird net to contact Daenerys via vision or it could be them meeting on the astral plane where Bran is, you know, one using the weirwood net. It could be that Danny is uh, possessed or unconscious by either, you know, knocked unconscious by the others or by Euron, and that there will need to be a rescue happening. Um, if you think about the House of the Undying, which is a really heavy foreshadowing for Daenerys' endgame, I think, what are the Undying trying to do? They're not trying to kill Danny. They're trying to trap her, and they're trying to possess her magic and basically suck off of her power and her magic. They want to control the dragons. They say that their magic is stronger because of the dragons. And the Undying are heavy foreshadowing of the others. They're cold shadows. They're gathered around a cold blue heart, which represents the heart of winter. And so what I think is going on here is that the others in their wildest fantasies, they would like to turn Daenerys into a Night Queen. They'd like to take her dragons and freeze them and turn them into cold dragons or, or something like that. And so we could have a situation where Danny needs to be rescued, and that that could be a magical type of astral plane rescue where Bran's got to use the weirwood net. Um, so backing away from all that tinfoil, and that's a lot of tinfoil, Bran and Daenerys are very parallel characters in so many ways. The most obvious touchstone for this is the House of the Undying. The House of the Undying and the Shade of the Evening experience that Danny has is so parallel to Bran's experience down to the description of the paste versus the shade of the evening wine, all the descriptor words as it goes down, to then what happens afterward. They both see a series of visions, mostly having to do with their family and their personal history uh, and a little bit of things to come. And so Bran and Daenerys are the two most magical people in the story by a long shot, and they are placed in parallel in so many ways. And so I think they're their coming together is going to be really important. And it's it's kind of going uh, by the wayside because everyone's thinking about RLJ. Uh, everyone's thinking about John and Danny coming together. But, you know, the Bran-Danny connection is going to be interesting. And it could be that Bran's magical knowledge is going to help Danny use the dragons. It could be, like I said, that Daenerys will need a rescue. There could be teaming up. There could be dragon skin changing. There's just so many 
interesting possibilities there. And so, yeah, I, I don't think they're going to come into direct conflict, uh, but never know. I, I give George Martin a lot of credit and a lot of, you know, room. I think it's easy to make the mistake of pigeonholing him and saying, well, this couldn't make sense or he's got to do this. Uh, he he has a way of, of making things work if he wants to. So, yeah, Justin Curl sort of backs up my point and says, Danny is the bloodstone jewel that everyone is trying to steal. Seems no one wants to kill her, but everyone wants to possess her, and she just wants a place to call her own. She does. She does. She's looking for that house of the red door. And everyone does want to possess her. That is very true. You know, his dar covets her reputation and power. Other people want the dragons. So, yeah. Everybody wants something from Danny. Uh, Josh Thompson, I mentioned the weirwood trees are white trees, W-I-G-H-T, making a connection between them and ice whites. Do you think there's a similar connection for fire whites? Yeah, so, well, the, the weirwoods are a symbolism of, they are a union of ice and fire. They can go both ways. When the weirwoods are not frozen, they actually have fire symbolism because their leaves look like bloody hands and their canopy looks like, quote, a blaze of flame. And so they look like a burning, bloody tree person. And I think Moses' burning bush is supposed to be evoked. The Grey King makes it also a burning tree. But then other times we see weirwoods frozen, uh, most famously in the Vermeer paralogue, where we see the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice. And of course, the others are pale shadows and they're armored in ice. So the weirwoods seem to be able to symbolize, uh, you know, fire and ice people. And I think that's a good clue that fire and ice magic stems from weirwood magic quite potentially. I think that there's also interesting cyclical stuff going on where you have something, you know, the moons or a moon queen or the weirwood going from fire to ice and possibly to fire again. Things get frozen and they sort of wake up in fire. Hashtag dragon locked in ice. So I think that's what's going to be going on. You're going to see the weirwoods kind of frozen and you'll be one uh, final uh, conf conflagration. That's the word I was looking for. Yes. Oh, yes, uh, Bran and Danny, another cool, uh, Carl Carsnark, another cool connection between Bran and Danny is that they're the two people who think about flying, and they're the two people who think about touching the comet and touching the moon and reaching the stars and all that stuff. Bran does it with astral projection. Danny does it with, you know, dragon flight. But they both have all this heavy flight symbolism. And that last to Dance with Dragons chapter where Danny does remember her flight um, away from Marine there is a lot of parallels to branch uh, brand stuff going on there. So, and yes, you can, you can do anything you want to that like button. As long as it gets clicked, you can caress, you can depress it. You can stroke, you can fondle, you can smash it. It's all, it all works. Uh, seriously though, guys, I do want to stop and say thanks real quick um, to everybody who continues to support me on Patreon. It means a lot. You know, obviously, I lost some people with the fandom uh, thing uh, six months ago. That's a given. Um, and I'm rebuilding from that. But then also, of course, uh, with the end of the season and the sort of, you know, widely perceived to be poor ending of the show, a lot of people have sort of wandered away. Their enthusiasm has petered out. They're looking at other shows. You know, it's like that gif where there's the guy looking at the one girl and his girlfriend's behind him like, hey. Like, that's kind of what everyone's doing at this point. Like, oh, look, look at that show. Look at that show. Uh, so those of you who are still enthusiastic about A Song of Ice and Fire and continue to both support me on Patreon and just listen, share, like, download, talk, engage, pump energy into the thing, thank you very much. It means more than ever. 
And I just wanted to say thank you very much. And I'll extend that to um, all your content creators too. Uh, anybody that you like, uh, can, you know, your support means a lot right now. So thank you very much. All right. And we've got a nice strapping audience of 102, 103 people here today. So that's awesome. Again, there are lots of people, uh, you know, there's other options. There's football on, there's all kinds of stuff going on. That red zone is, uh, it's addictive. So thank you very much. Uh, River Missoula asks, who do you believe will be brand's queen? Uh, wow. I hadn't ever thought about that. If Bran has a queen, well, it could be the weirwood tree in a sense because the green seer is wedded to the tree. I don't know if Bran will get married. That might be part of his whole like transitioning away from monarchy is that he doesn't need, um, you know, a, a ruling monarch. But I'll ask the chat if there if there is a queen, who uh, who would it be? That's a damn good question. Here's a wild thought. Since okay, so Bran's not having children. So his queen doesn't necessarily need to be someone that he's married to. How about that? Who was the first king of Westeros? His queen was his sister. Aha! Queen Arya, the witch queen. Could be. Maybe. That would be kind of, uh, that would be very uh, Paul Atreides and like his little killer sister, wouldn't it? Uh, no, I'm not sure who else would be queen, though. I mean, if Sansa is going to be queen in the north, then... You know, like I said, Bran, Bran's title of king might be a temporary transitional title anyways. So it's uh, hard to say. Yeah, if Mira's alive, I guess that would be the romantic choice, right? Queen Mira. I guess I'll have to go with that. She's, she's definitely Bran's queen of love and beauty. I think that's safe to say. I guess I should have said that first. All right. So Leto, the god emperor, who is the basis for Bran, at least in part, did not get married, Emilio points out. So that's probably a good a good tip off there. And like I said, he does wed the tree. That's, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's one thing they're doing. Uh, DD Villana. One question is based on the premise that the weirwood trees are infected. And as a result, they are not natural form. Is it possible their true form was based on the Royal Empress tree? Uh, I don't, the Royal Empress tree is not one I've come across in my research D. So maybe on Twitter, you can fill me in on that, but I do favor the idea that there was, a form of weirwoods like before their great sort of corruption. Uh, they may not have even had, not only without carved faces, but even the coloring, the blood red leaves, which is kind of unnatural, you know, all that could be a magical alteration. The fact that they live forever, that might not be natural. We really don't know. It's, I mean, the weirwood tree is such a weird thing. Uh, it, it is an open question as to how much of it has always been that way and how much of it uh, was a result of some sort of alteration. Uh, okay, so the Empress tree has huge heart-shaped leaves. Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty cool. Obviously, I think um, there's a lot of symbolism of the weirwoods being female with the whole Nissa Nissa connection, so. All right, um, let's go, I'm gonna flip over to my Patreon. So Patreon questions, I got a couple here. So Pat Riley says, the Oak King brand Photoshop gives me life. You're quite welcome. I have had a lot of fun with it. Do you see brand fulfilling the death and rebirth cycle with the seasons as the Oak and Holly Kings do? Maybe instead of burning the Weirwood Net, he burns himself the last portal to the Weirwood Net. No, I, I think it will be a Weirwood Net shutdown, but I think you could say that uh, he mirrors that in that, like he, like I was saying, if he ends up being the last king, then he's, he is sort of shutting down the monarchy, which he is the king, He's shutting down the Weirwood Net, and he's the Greenseer. So 
he's he's doing that rare thing of someone who takes power and then immediately disperses that power instead of gathering it to him. And that's something that, you know, people can't do very often, if ever. And in fact, I will add one little thought to the whole King Bran idea that George might be talking about. And I've mentioned this before, so I won't harp on it too long. But one of the points of, of George saying that um, an all-knowing God emperor like Bran should be king is actually admitting that nobody should be king. Because in, in the real world, there is no perfect person with all knowledge of history and the ability to detach their emotions and make you know purely rational um, hopefully moral decisions, but without the extra, you know, personal bias, that person doesn't exist and never will. And if we had that kind of person, well, perhaps they should be king. If someone has perfect judgment and perfect knowledge and no bias, well, you kind of would want that person perhaps designing the perfect society and making all the decisions and stuff. I mean, it's still kind of fascist, so I wouldn't go for that. But in theory, if anyone should be king, it would be like a God-man. However, obviously, like I said, there is no God-man or God-woman. It doesn't exist. And so, in a way, George is sort of sending you a message, like the only person who could even hope to really rule over everyone would be a, a perfect God-man who doesn't exist. And so, really, George is kind of, between the lines there, he's sort of endorsing the idea that we shouldn't have consolidated power like monarchy. And of course, that's nothing controversial, that's what we believe in the modern world. You know, we believe in individual liberty and and uh, human rights and things like that. So, I think that'll be some very interesting commentary there. And yeah, we do live in a plutocracy. This is true, Victor. But we're not going to get political. And I'm going to go to comments here from King Brand video. If you leave a comment on YouTube, I think by now you understand that I may very well read it live on the air so make sure you use proper spelling and diction all right so i've got some people thanking me saying that they're really enjoying it they're enjoying the photoshop thank you very much okay so what if bran and euron and this is yensid uh, are both representative of the gray king and also the summer king uh versus holly king dualistic nature of that archetype uh great videos always i was surprised you didn't mention icarus and i yeah i talked about that that's kind of funny. He says, I was surprised you didn't mention Icarus in your examples of reaching too high and being punished, although I guess, strictly speaking, he was a victim of his own hubris and not struck down by any gods, so never mind. <laughs> but what about this, Yen Sid? What if, uh, what if Icarus tends to be something that Euron shows us? Because he does, he is more of that fool character who is, you know, self-aggrandizing, seeking personal power. He's talking about leaping from a tall tower as well. And of course, that's the same tower symbolism potentially, but I definitely think that, you know, crashing and burning is, 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 could be in Euron's destiny, right? Got some people responding to the whole idea of um, monarchy and democracy and all that. That's cool. Uh, what would King Brand's first tweet be? This is Chow AJ. After his coronation, what, what are his favorite hashtags? So if Brand could tweet, uh, he would tweet, uh, nevermore. Be like, the monarchy, colon, nevermore. That, that's my, uh, that's my quote, yeah. Corn, R.I.P. Hodor, that would be a good one. So let's talk about Euron for a second. He is, I call him Pirate Odin on Bad Acid. He is very much like Alt-Blood Raven. Uh, it's, there's a decent chance that he is a failed Blood Raven pupil, 
and that whole idea of leaping from a tall tower and flying and the crow's eye and the third eye logo on the banner and all that stuff, you know, means that he is like a fail. He has actual green seer potential. It's hard to understand that. There's not a lot of green seer blood running around on the Iron Islands, quite frankly. Uh, you got those far winds. And that's about it. So hard to say if that's the way. But the thing is, I have postulated that um, Azor High was not a green seer to start with, but that he broke into the Weirwood Net and that he had, he broke into it and obtained its power basically by killing Nissa Nissa and using her in a dark and awful blood magic ritual. And so it's possible that Euron will attempt to gain Weirwood power or maybe he'll interface with Bran on the astral plane without being a quote-unquote green seer. Um, he is drinking the shade of the evening and the shade of the evening comes from the... I guess they're just called shade shade of the evening trees. They don't really have a name, but the uh, you know there's obviously a lot of parallels between the shade trees and the weirwood trees. Like they're just inverted color wise. Otherwise, they're very similar. And even the uh, undying gathered around the shade trees parallel the green seers very well. They're old and decrepit, and they're kind of corpse like and all that stuff. So it's possible that Euron's becoming whatever the undying are, uh, which is kind of like a green seer. We don't know the technicalities of the shade tree magic. We don't know if they're actually like a, a warped weirwood tree or if they're a different species of weirwood tree. It's they're it's very hard to explain what they are in like technical magical in a technical magical sense. Um, so it could be that that is what that he's a he's a shade seer or a he's a warlock, you know, uh, a soon to be undying, if you will. And so there's. I think that we've been shown evidence that people can interact on the astral plane no matter how they get there. For example, Melisandre looks through the flames uh, and she sees Bran and Bloodraven. And you can guess that Bloodraven could probably sense Melisandre as well. And Danny takes the shade of the evening drink and she sees visions in Westeros and about the Starks, um, which isn't exactly the same thing, but it's certainly interesting. The Red Wedding, for example, is an event that's coming and multiple people see it coming from Danny in the House of the Undying to the Ghost of the High Heart. And if all those people can see the same event coming through different means of magic, and if Melisandre can see Bloodraven, then I think that there's really kind of only one astral plane. I think multiple people can get there. So, all right. Now, uh, let's see. Johnny Small says, if Bran is going to happen... Oh, Branny. I guess that's Bran Danny. Uh, I could see Danny needing to enter the Weirwoods in order to purge it with fire. Yes, purge it with fire. Burn them all. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this is something that uh, Ball the Bard and I were chatting about. If Weirwoods need to be burned, you know, like who's got the fire? That's Danny. Uh, there's a lot of dragon Weirwood tree burning foreshadowing. That's why I made that the cover of End of Ice and Fire 2, if you all remember that. The two dragons, ice and fire, breathing on the weirwood tree. You know, I just talked about the idea of maybe Danny needing a rescue and Bran going in there. I could even be the other way around, for that matter. Danny and Drogon coming in to rescue. Everybody might need rescuing. It's going to be winds of winter, man. It's going to be dark times. Yeah. So the question is, Danny and the weirwoods. How are they going to interact? I, like I said, I've got my fingers crossed for some sort of interaction there. I would say that's second on the list. Like my first wish list is obviously some sort of meteor comet moon destruction event to cause the new long night shortly after that close second would definitely be danny showing us nissa nissa weirwood stuff somehow uh so 
let's see it you know i mean shit it what if what if euron has a shade of the evening tree and he tries to sacrifice danny to the tree or something dark like that or maybe the that half dead weirwood in old town i mean euron's definitely you know i don't think he wants danny because she's hot uh she he talks about how beautiful she is but let's not you know let's not kid ourselves uh, euron is after magical power and that's all he cares about so uh, wouldn't burning the weirwoods be metaphorically tearing down heaven? The only afterlife we know of is the weirwood net. So it's the afterlife of the children of the forest, uh, but the green seers should not be living in the weirwood net. So, and there's also a question of what exactly does burning the weirwood down, what does it mean? Like purging it with fire could just mean like driving out the green seer mind. It could be that the others need to go back into the weirwoods because I believe they are spliced off from the weirwoods in some sense. Or it, it could be that, you know, the children of the forest are, are you know, they're gone uh, and they don't need to use the weirwoods anymore at the end of this. Um, because they don't just go into the weirwoods. They, they go into everything, into the rocks and the trees and the stone and the earth and like all of nature. So I don't think it's supposed to be a, an afterlife for the humans, I guess is the short answer. Uh, yes, I do think... Uh, Shamanka Angel Heart, I do believe that the Weirwood Network is based on the fungi mycelium network, mushroom psychedelic influence. Yes, that, that's all the Amanitas muscaria. That's all in the Weirwoods. So they've got the Amanitas muscaria coloring. Um, the way the Weirwood tree tops pop up from the underground root networks is very like a, um, a fungus organism. Blood Raven has a mushroom on his cheek. Um, uh, mushrooms pop up after a rain. And there's all that symbolism about meteors striking in the places where the weirwood trees grow because the weirwood trees are like the rising column of ash, like the ash tree Yggdrasil, like the lightning bolt striking the tree and setting it on fire. Over and over we see this motif of things striking the tree or the tree growing where things strike. This impact point of the meteor is the same place where the weirwood tree exists. I've called it uh, ground zero bonfire. So there's definitely a lot of mushroom symbolism you know, if you, I guess my point there was like, if you imagine a meteor rain and the weirwood trees springing up like mushrooms after the rain, I think that it's possible those meteors were oily and black. They were the oily black stone. They're toxic and bad. The uh, weirwoods could be neutralizing their effect on the land, something like that. We might see that on the Isle of Faces or in the heart of winter. So yes, there's a lot of cool mushroom symbolism. And the main thing is that um, in every forest in the world, the tree we've discovered now that trees actually do communicate. It's not just that panda organism. Trees communicate with each other in the forest through the root networks. And the way that they do that is through bacteria and fungi that colonize the roots. That is how it happens. It's science. Go read about it. So so John Isize says, although the idea of severing the, uh, says, okay, no, there's two thoughts. Let me back up and get your first comment. The trees are the link to heaven, although the idea of severing the link from earth to heaven is theologically troublesome. It is an interesting commentary on the whole question of whether or not man should have the fire of the gods. Bran is kind of using it to help everybody, but at the same time, we kind of lost our privileges there, didn't we? Uh, we'll have to see. It depends on if George leaves us a hint that the magic could come back, like, is there going to be a dragon's egg left over? Is there going to be a cold wind blowing at the end? You know, will there be some sort of hint that all this could come back? Or will the dragons and the others be permanently gone? Hard to say. Hard to say. We'll just have to wait and see what George does. Tsiki. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. I'm not going to try the last name. 
but uh, the question is, won't the realm be oppositional to all magical beings after Euron and the Sept blowing up at King's Landing? Uh, no, because I think it will be known that Bran helped save Westeros from the White Walkers. And once everybody knows that the White Walkers are real, they're going to be grateful for Bran uh, for saving everything. And like I said, he also does represent a transition away from magic, even though he's a magical being. Because once the Weirwood Net is kind of downloaded into him, he may not even be that magical anymore. He's just like kind of knows everything. So we'll see. But, you know, again, that's these are some of the interesting things that George will get to wrestle with when he writes this. All right, going back to my YouTube comments here. A lot of the comments are just people saying how much they like the video. So thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate that. And of course, that's not only is it worth your time to leave a little comment like that, but it also helps the video get seen more. The more comments are on a video, it has a lot to do with the YouTube algorithm. So if you like a video, whether it's mine or anybody else's, always leave a little comment. Don't just upvote it. Just leave a little, hey, that was great or something. That helps too. So appreciate it. And it also makes me feel good. Uh, Rhea says, oh, I got a super chat. Oh, D. D. Villano was just asking, saying thank you for answering her question. No problem. And I see what you were saying about the crow and all that stuff. That's a bit of a deeper concept that I probably don't want to get into today. But with, remind me to chat about with you on that on Twitter. And we can talk about that. And uh, make sure to tag Ravenous Reader so she can antagonize me with her three-eyed crow tinfoil. Because that's just our relationship. And that's how we function. Live chat comments. No, I'm talking about the comments left under the video. Like after this video is done, for example, if everybody that came to the chat leaves a comment on the bottom of the video, that is very helpful. So please do that on your way out. Leave your leave a little thought about the live stream. That is, that's it. Yes. Can you find symbolism in real life? Brandon Blackfire asks. Maybe you can find all this predictive programming everyone keeps talking about. It seems it all has to do with ancient symbolism. Uh, yeah. So you should read that book by Mark Booth about the secret history of the world. That's where I would start. Um, but I tend to not be a believer in conspiracy theories and stuff like that. I find them interesting, but tend not to think so. I, there is lots of symbolism in real life, but I believe in the Terminator ethos. There is no fate, but what we make for ourselves. And so I don't think, uh, I don't know. Not sure about all that. I'm going to stick to a fictional universe where it, everything is safe. But, of course, we do talk about symbolism in the real life. The whole thing about symbolism is that in the Joseph Campbell sense, it's not meant to be seen as literally true or false. It's more about a, an esoteric sense of truth, a teaching. Uh, so, yeah, you guys know what, I'm, know what all that's about. Let's see. Will Hodor hate Bran? Well, Hodor's not going to make it, so... I'm not sure um, how he's going to feel about it. He doesn't seem to like being body snatched. And I do think we haven't seen the end of that. So, I mean, Hodor is a very tragic figure. There's no question. Uh, Asher's trueborn son. Or no, I'm sorry. Derek Hammond. Has anyone ever talked about where George got the last hero math? Well, I mean, it, you find it a lot of places, but Jesus and the 12 disciples is obviously a, you know, a pretty strong contender. So uh, Jay Riley says, I think it's worth mentioning here that Bran will only break the net, not kill it. Using it in the way he does, that helps mankind. It will force the trees to regrow. I was wondering about the meaning of the tree at the night fort and why the larger tree is growing through something and turning it into a new looking sprout. Also fire. Uh, well, actually, let's go ahead and address that first. So, yeah, I, I do like that idea that, I mean, that would be optimal, right? Is green seers are kicked out of the weirwoods but, you know, the weirwoods get, the, the, the trees get to enjoy their home again. Or ideally, the others are put back in there. 
And so, yeah, I, I would I would like to see the weirwoods not completely like eradicated. It's really get it's really about getting the green seers out. So when we burn the weirwoods, the idea is like driving out the green seer spirits that are in there. So I'm, I'm probably I'll give you a preview of one of my future videos here, but think back to the Grey King video. In the Grey King video at the end, I went through a whole bunch of scenes where there is burning wood and fiery dancers or fiery sorcerers that seem to appear from some sort of bonfire. And I've identified all these bonfires as ground zero bonfires, which just basically means that this is an all-important symbol that symbolizes the fire of the gods coming to earth, the waking of the dragons. It's, it's the ground zero where all the fiery transformations happen. And so if you remember, there was a whole, there's like six or seven of these scenes. Um, first of all, there is Danny hatching the dragons. She sees, and she looks in the flames and they look, there's two different descriptions. One, they look like fiery sorcerers with long smoky cloaks. And then a minute later, they look like the dancers at her wedding with red, orange, and yellow robes. So she sees fiery dancers, uh, dancerers, fiery dancers and fiery sorcerers in the bonfire. And this turns out to be a motif that we see over and over and over. And we see it on, Stan on um, Dragonstone. Melisandre takes on the burning robes and then also the, um, the burning gods themselves uh, end up looking like the fiery sorcerers. Then we have John and Corn Halfhand burning the wood that had been dead a long time right before John ends up killing Corn and they confront the wildlings. Um, and the, the wood has been dead a long time but lived again in the flames and it looks like a fiery sorcerer coming out. Um, then we've got Arya at the uh, little village near Harrenhal. Imri Lorch is besieging the village. They're throwing the burning torches over the walls and there's a tree that gets robed in flame as if it is the fiery sorcerer. So now we have a tree as the sorcerer. It's a burning tree. This is really awesome because the burning tree is also like a burning person. So it's showing you that the that the fiery sorcerers are, are attached to the weirwood tree. They're coming out of the burning tree, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's one or two more. But the point is, when we set the weirwoods on fire, what happens? These fiery sorcerers come out of the weirwood tree. And what am I saying? That we need to get the green seers out of the weirwood trees. And what are the green seers? They are the sorcerers who possess the fire of the gods and they're inside the tree. And when we burn the tree, they get expelled and, and set free. And it even happens when they uh, burn people at the stake. Um, you know, somebody visualizes their spirits, you know, leaving their body and, and being happy and going to heaven. Although that's not what happens when you're burnt alive. In any case, it's ample foreshadowing for it happening. Uh, driving out the sorcerers from the trees. And I originally interpreted this as essentially the rebirth of Azor High coming out of the, the Weirwood Tree. I'm sort of changing that a little bit. Uh, of course, I always reserve the right to, you know, evolve my interpretations. But of course, there's also the, the thing with uh, George liking to parallel the beginning and the end. You know, they look the same. And so a scene that like shows you the beginning can also show you the ending. So it could be simultaneously like Azor High, the fiery sorcerer going into the tree and possessing the fire of the gods and also being expelled from the tree. It's basically the inverse opposite action to the original action. So, uh, where will they go? They're gonna go into Bran. That's the thing. Bran is the probably gonna be the repository 
for the Weirwood Ned hive mind. That's that's kind of I mean that's what we see on the show, and I think that's what we're gonna see in the books. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Oh, uh, continuing with that YouTube comment from Jai Riley, he says, uh, also fire is often the deconstructive force that sets up the possibility for reconstruction. I've referred to Danny as a cleansing fire that's going to set the stage for new growth. And so you can see how these ideas could definitely all come together uh, with with Danny and the dragons having something to do with burning the green seers out of the weirwood net, potentially. So uh, somebody points out, uh, Evangelos Vlacho says, the part in Old Nan's story about the crows that eat uh, the bad little boy's eyes, also a hint to Prometheus' punishment. Yes, because it's the eagle which tears at uh, Prometheus. So yeah, I, I sort of, I guess I meant to imply that. I didn't really harp on it and spell it out, but yeah, you're totally right. The bad little boy is punished in a very Prometheus-like fashion. And also, um, you'll see uh, John gets attacked by the eagle. And he's another Fire of the Gods character, obviously. He's a Lightbringer figure. He's an Azor High Reborn figure. And he gets attacked by Orel's eagle and, and scarred across one eye. So you've kind of got a merging of the Prometheus punishment and the Odin marking kind of in one there, which is kind of fun. like that. Hey, Ball the Bard, you off the highway? I hope you're not commenting and driving. Do you think the God's Eye is an impact crater? Any other candidates you see for Comet Moon Meteor Remnants? Um, I think the God's Eye is the important one. It may not be an impact crater, or it may, or it may simply be the place where we're going to find Oily Black Meteor Stone. It's hard to say. Um, speaking in terms of strict science, for it to be an impact crater, the Moon Meteor event would have had to been hundreds of thousands of years ago, if not millions, to have time for the crater like to form and fill in. Those things don't happen in like 10,000 years. However, it could be that, you know, George is, you know, it's it's fantasy, not hard sci-fi. So maybe he's imagining that it is, or maybe he just, you know, sort of riffing on the crater lake idea. I mean, the island in the middle of the lake is what a crater lake looks like, uh, but it's also a trope, the island in the middle of the lake in many stories like Avalon or whatever. Um, that don't have to do with meteors. So it's probably just an interesting uh, confluence. The important thing is the idea that the God's eye is where the magic power is. It's the center of the weirwood net. And if there's anything, if there's any oily black stone, <laughs> Baldabard's like, I can dictate the comments when, as long as the traffic isn't that bad. Just be safe, be safe. Uh, oh, 10 minute warning. Thank you, Dark Mother. Communion is coming around. I've got some intermu- intermission music queued up for that. And let's see here. Where was I? Ah, yes, the oily black stone and the god's eye. So here's something I wanted to go back to with the god's eye from the end of Ice and Fire 3, which is the one where I talked about the dragon battle over the god's eye. Um, This has been staring us in the face, and I just noticed it. But take a look at the god's eye. It's the eye of the gods. It's a lake. And it's the eye of the gods. What color is the freaking lake? It's blue. It's a blue eye. The eye of the gods is a blue eye. And in the middle, the pupil is the Isle of Faces. What's on the Isle of Faces? The Weirwoods. So what is the center of the power of the others who have the blue eyes and the power of the gods? It's the Weirwoods, which is at the center of the god's eye. I mean, that's a pretty good one. It's basically a very literal clue about the origin of the other's power being from the Weirwoods, and it's sitting right there. So that's pretty friggin' awesome. And so I think that we're gonna find some really interesting truths there on the God's Eye. I'm definitely hoping for oily black stone either in the heart of winter 
or on the God's Eye. Um, and I'd also like to see a frozen weirwood tree in the heart of winter, uh, in case anyone is listening, George. Okay, so. And then, of course, you know, in the dragon fight that takes place over the God's Eye, you've got a dude with one blue star eye, Aemond One Eye, who gets, gets stabbed in the eye with the sword, the dragon sword, and all the dragons then fall into the lake and stab the God's Eye Lake in the eye. And so you've got this double eye-stabbing symbolism, and so I think we're going to get some really important dragon action there. And there's also that pattern in the Green Sea episode that I covered where we see dragons going to either the Isle of Faces or a place that symbolizes the Isle of Faces. There's four different instances of that, and it's all amid uh, Green Seer dragon symbolism. So I, again, I talking about Daenerys and Bran, talking about the intersection of the dragon plotline and the Green Seer plotline, George has dropped us ample clues that this is important, that dragons and weirwood net magic have a very important connection, just as the others in weirwood net magic have an important connection. It all joins with the weirwoods. That's the whole river trident, red, green, blue thing, red, red, green, blue, strong sigil, house Massey with the triple swirls. This is all about magic and it all comes from the weirwoods. It all ties to the weirwoods. And so I think that's what we're going to see is just the God's eye is going to be important. Heart of Winter is going to be important. And the connection between Danny and Bran is just going to be a lot more fleshed out than what we saw on the show. And I'm very excited about all of that. So could something be hidden in the oily stones? You mean like an intelligence? Well, that's the Lovecraft idea. I think George likes to imply those kinds of things. But I will say that on the live stream I did last night with Quinn, uh, which again will be available to the public in about a week or so on the Ideas of Ice and Fire channel. I asked him point blank what he thought the odds were of Euron being taken over by some sort of Night King Azor High Presence in the Weirwood Net. And he liked the idea. It was obviously a very Lovecraftian idea. And uh, he was down. So maybe it'll happen. I mean, that's what happens in Lovecraft stories. You have these people that want to be more powerful, they're reaching for this forbidden knowledge and forbidden power. And what happens? usually bites their prick off, to use Marwin's uh, expression. It usually comes back to bite them. Very frequently, these intelligences take over the people and scramble their brains or use them to do horrible things. And so I could definitely see Euron, you know, could see something like that happening to Euron. So, um, Ball the Bard had an interesting comment back here. Could Euron's blood eye imply it has been pack, uh, packed out and turned, oh, pecked out and turned bloody? Um well, symbolism, yeah, I guess it could. I mean, it's definitely the Odin symbolism and the blood eye. Yeah, I guess that would tie to the idea of the crows pecking out the bad little boy's eyes. So, yeah, Euron is definitely the bad little boy. Someone needs to stab him through the eye with a sword. That's my opinion. Chow AJ, your kids are talking over me. Well, good for them. That means you've raised a couple of spitfires. And they've got plenty to say. They don't need the LML guy on the YouTube talking. Got their own thoughts. That's awesome. Ciao, AJ. Hope the family time is going well. And it's always here to watch on the rewatch. Uh, Tree Girl left me a nice comment saying that she that I have a talent for video editing and that the fade from the broken tower into Bran's hand as he climbs is one of many examples. Thanks, Tree Girl. I really appreciate that. I did spend more time on the video editing, so appreciate you pointing that out. And oh, I've only got a couple minutes. I better get prepared here. One thing that I hate about this new live streaming format is that it doesn't give me a camera mute. And so every time we do this drill, but uh, 
Yeah, here, let me, uh, let me fire it up. By the way, I have made a SoundCloud for my nightmare music. Um, you guys might have noticed there was some spacey background music uh, behind all the quotes in my last video. And when you see Quinn's new Demons video, you'll also hear a different nightmare fuel music from yours truly in the background there. So this is something I am. I used to just have that one Space Odyssey track, now I've got like four. And so I'm going to fire up a little something something while I get ready for community. That's enough of that nonsense. Hey, I still got 94 people here. That's cool. You guys are my people. I did a, I only lost five people during that whole time. That's, guys, everybody, just big hug, group hug. I hope everyone was uh, partaking along with their glass of wine or legal or legal medical cannabis, depending on your state. I uh, see, oh, Bron Haler's hitting the coffee. Yeah, 8.20 a.m. in Australia. Hey, wake and bake, come on. I guess it's Monday morning for you. It's not a good wake and bake day. Sunday's better for that. Yes. All right. So King Brand is fun. King Brand is cool. Um, like I said, I think I've got two more King Brand videos to do. Uh, one is going to have to do with the others. And one is going to have to do with the idea of getting the green seers out of the weirwood net. I'm gonna, I've talked about it on the margins a lot, but I need to gather together all the evidence that the green seers shouldn't be in the weirwood net and that they need to get booted out at the end, including all those fiery scenes where the fiery sorcerers appear to be driven out of the burning trees. Um, that probably will be one video. And then the other video will be about all the icy weirwood symbolism. Specifically, if you look at Sweet Robin, uh, Robin Aaron, Bran's cousin, who's only one year younger than Bran, I believe. Very strong parallel to Bran. And you guys probably might even wonder why I haven't talked about it up to this point. Because, like I said, it's Bran's cousin. He's a little boy, and he sits on a friggin' weirwood throne, right? I mean, we see it right in book one. We see this little boy sitting on a weirwood throne. So if you want King Bran foreshadowing, this is probably the first place to look, right? It's Bran's friggin' cousin. He is both a monarch and a boy who sits on a weirwood throne. So, like, ta-da! King Brand foreshadowing. There it is. Here's the messed up thing, though. Robin Aaron doesn't help anyone. <laughs> I mean, he makes people fly. He helps people fall to their death. Uh, but he doesn't, he's not a good ruler. He doesn't help anyone. And his tale seems to be headed towards tragedy or maybe almost tragedy and then a left turn if, if George is feeling benevolent. But sign of a kind of a confusing parallel to Bran once you get past the obvious parallel there. Um, and yes, obviously the moon door. Yeah, there's all. If you look at the throne room, it's not just the weirwood throne. The moon door gives you the whole weirwood door, weirwood face, doors of perception metaphor, which we see with the black gate, which Bran went through on the way to Blood Raven's cave. Um, the idea of going out of the moon door being called flying. I mean, this is. You don't even need me to tell you what this what this means. I mean, come on, guys. You know, it's like we're using the weirwood net to fly. We're opening the hodors of perception and flying. And it happens in the literal world. You end up splatted on the bottom like those failed dreamers in Bran's vision. But of course, the real goal is to use the weirwood door to fly as the crows fly. And that's what Bran does. Oh, the most democratic thing is the election of the Lord Commander. 
Is it the king's mood or is it the Lord Commander? That's a good question. I've never compared those two. Um, coming soon, democracy in Westeros. You know, uh, maybe. Uh, let's talk about it on Twitter, Mark. That's a that's a good um, that's a good uh, posit. That might be the case. I again, I have to think about it a little more. But of course, those Lord Commander elections—they are subject to Russian interference. I mean, uh, Crow Green Seer interference, uh, push pushing that fake news. Uh, so you gotta you gotta watch out. You gotta watch out for those crows. They're all liars, as old man says. What was I just gonna say? Oh yeah. So the the eerie, like I said, it, it's an obvious brand parallel. All kinds of green seer and weirwood symbolism. The flying, the weirwood throne, but not a very good example for kingship. And headed towards tragedy. And oh by the way, the entire throne room of the eerie is decked out in other symbolism. Of course, as we've covered in signs and portals and elsewhere, the pale stone of the eerie is veined with blue the pale white marbles veined with blue so you've got the blue blood fl flowing through the snow white marble um there are pale shadows and ice armor going on and all kinds of things it's been a while since i read it but it's very heavy it's very thick uh there's two primary scenes there's Tyrion's trial and then there's sansa confronting lysa followed shortly by peter coming in and killing lysa and both of those scenes just have a ton of icy symbolism. The eerie in general, when it gets frozen over, it's described as an icy tomb, a god's wood without gods, and all this really interesting language that it, it's weird with symbolism, but it's all slanted towards ice and death and the lack of the gods and, and the others and all this really kind of dark stuff. So it seems clear to me that what's going on here is that George is showing us this icy half of the weirwood net. Like, you guys remember, I've, I've been talking about a partition, about the idea that the green seers have access to one side of the weirwood net, which we call the hot side, the warm side. The other's power, you know, is maybe still rooted in the trees. When I talked about the others getting kicked out of the internet, uh, internet, the weirwood net, um, a, ver a semantic variation on that is that the weirwood net essentially was partitioned and that they are, they are kicked out and exiled to one little corner or one side of it, which is like the frozen pond compared to the green sea of the green seers. And so that's what we're seeing with Sweet Robin, is we're seeing potentially like how the Night King happened, or you could say that we're seeing what happens if Bran goes wrong. Because you have to remember, um, go back to Bran's coma dream. George sets up an interesting dichotomy. Bran is falling, and... He's got a choice to fly or die. It's put in those very stark terms. And when he looks down, he sees these icy spires. And on these ice spires are the bodies of impaled dreamers. So basically, you can see these are people that have been in Bran's position. They were falling. And instead of being able to fly, they failed. They fell all the way. They were impaled on the ice spire. And that really sounds like an otherization to me, like a transformation into ice because stabbing is so often transformational. Think about Nissa Nissa, Lightbringer, the thing takes fire. Think about, um, you know, stabbing people with dragon glass on the show. Basically, that does everything. Uh, but we could see something similar on the books. And so, yeah, the, and dreamers impaled on ice spires sounds a lot like otherized dreamers, frozen dreamers. And I think Euron should be equated to one of these people, one of these failed fallen dreamers. And so that's what I think Sweet Robin is tapping into is that line of symbolism of the icy dreamers who don't 
who don't fly. And so if if Sweet Robin gets thrown out the moon door, which I guess can't happen anymore since they left the Eerie. So I don't know. If I, I tend to think Sweet Robin is ten is trending towards a tragic death. And so I think we'll see that falling symbolism. I would I would not be surprised if he fell to his death somehow, I guess is what I'm saying. Hey, Brandon Blackfire, I read one of your YouTube comments earlier, so you can catch that on the rewatch if you are just showing up. Um, I do think we can hope for winds of winter next year. I'm eternally the optimist on that, but I, I think George must be almost done, and I think he's probably trying very hard to finish as soon as he can so he can write for House of Tits and Dragons, which I know he wants to do. Uh, the democracy talk is carrying on. So Bron Haler points out that the King's Moot allows for a vote by mob while the Night's Watch has anonymous votes. Uh, that's true. That's true. That's a good point. Both of them are kind of have that mob aspect to the fact that like people are making speeches and then people are choosing on the spur of the moment. It's not a drawn out campaign. I mean, the Night's Watch campaign is a little bit drawn out, but um, you know, people are are definitely choosing on emotion and based on the movement of the crowd in the room. It's true that the anonymous vote is a is a protection against mob rule, but uh, yeah, so. Different discussion, but it's always fun to do. Um, <laughs> Pat Riley says, uh, obviously Euron is the dark solar king with his two lunar queens, Bran and Sweet Robin. <laughs> well, that's pretty messed up. Um, okay, well, so let me just wrap up my thought there. So I was just saying that I basically have two King Bran episodes coming still. We've got the one where all these abominations need to be driven out of the weirwood net, and we've got the one looking at Sweet Robin's symbolism and trying to figure out what George is saying by showing us a brand character in a weird throne surrounded by icy symbolism. Um, there's, I've got two big ideas about that. Either, either Sweet Robin is showing us what happens if Bran fails or what happened to Euron, or it could be that if Bran gets entrapped by the others temporarily, then that could be what we're seeing there. Like picture Sweet Robin in this icy temple and Sweet Robin is kind of trapped. Like Peter Baelish is using him not for Sweet Robin's benefit. He's using him for Peter's benefit, and he's kind of being controlled against his will. And so he is kind of trapped in his own uh, in his own hall, if you will. And so that if if Bran is for a time trapped in the in the weirwood net by the others, or in a frozen northern location, then you could see uh, you could see that as a potential parallel. So I need to investigate further and see what I think that is showing me. Um, I keep talking about people being trapped and rescued. There's a ton of symbolism about a rescue going on in the Weirwood Net. I've been talking about it for a couple of years. I'm just not sure who it is, who gets rescued and who does the rescuing. Uh, but it definitely there's, like I said, a lot of the villains are trying to possess people instead of just kill them. And so you have anybody that's magical is uh, a candidate to be, you know, for someone to try to sort of possess them and, enthrall them and capture them. Did Blood Raven kill 1,000 kids trying to find Bran? Guilty Undertaker asks. God, I hope not. That's pretty dark. But we do have to wonder about what Blood Raven's culpability. Is this a Luke Skywalker, Kylo Ren thing? You know, the failed pupil, how much of the blame is on the teacher, how much is on the pupil? Hard to say. Hard to say. Okay. Okay, Brandon. That's different. Uh, different trajectory, but let's talk about that. So Brandon Blackfire asks, LML, can you talk about how Jamie is going to do in the Riverlands? Will he follow Brienne or kill Lady Stoneheart? So this is one of my favorite things that I'm looking forward to reading in the opening pages of Winds of Winter, 
one of the first chapters should be Brienne or Jamie's POV inside Stoneheart's cave. And we have some very exciting things at play. We have a Stoneheart weirwood ghost figure who really needs the gift of mercy in a bad way. We've got Oathkeeper, a sword which is a candidate to become a Lightbringer sword. Let's put it that way. And then we've got Jamie with his Azor High symbolism and Brienne with her uh, good other uh, symbolism, which is parallel to John's in many ways. And so there's heavy potential for some killing and some magic to happen. Uh, I definitely think Jamie and Brienne are both coming out of that cave. I think one of them will have Oathkeeper. I think Stoneheart might bite the dust in that scene. And my favorite tinfoil would be for Oathkeeper to take fire, uh, stabbing Lady Stoneheart, who is a creature animated by fire. So it kind of makes sense if that happens. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, so let's talk about Jamie as a character. Where is he heading after he comes out of this cave? The Stoneheart thing is going to freak him out for sure. We don't know where Brienne's head is at because she had a near-death experience. So I think Brienne and Jamie, man, I would really love to see them come out of that cave as like having a second period of time where they travel together as, as their odd couple selves because they're both going to be sort of you know, they're, they keep getting broken down further and further so that they can become, you know, people with more grit and depth. And that more applies to Jamie than Brienne, I guess. But yeah, I'd love to see Jamie and Brienne. Gosh, what are they going to do? So in the Riverlands, we've got Stoneheart orchestrating the Brotherhood Without Banners, who are probably going to take revenge on the phrase. And then I'm not sure what, what Jamie will be doing. I, I do think that, like the show, Jamie will eventually end up in the North to fight the others. So it could be that he's already broken with Cersei when he burned that letter, and that basically him and Jaime will end up going north. If Stoneheart doesn't die and actually lets them out, uh, perhaps that is what happens. Perhaps they take them prisoner for a time until they can learn of the threat of the others. Because if, if you remember, originally what happened with Cat and Jaime is that Cat let Jaime out of prison and made him swear an oath. So... If Jamie is set up to go and fight for the North and fight for the Starks, it could be that he's going to make another oath, uh, even if it's only to himself, some sort of oath of duty or honor. Uh, it could have definitely something to do with his encounter with Catelyn here. And encountering Catelyn is going to be a little bit of an accounting for Jamie, obviously. So this is going to be another scene which is going to further Jamie's character de uh, development uh, by forcing him to confront his own actions. Because as we've talked about, there's a not we, but the fandom in general. You know, redemption arc is sometimes an oversimplified term. Um, it's It should be looked at as more of an ongoing process. The same person that does bad things can also do good things. And that's been Jamie's MO the whole time. Like, he saved King's Landing when he was 17 by killing Ares, but he's done a lot of bad shit since then, too. So that's not part of a redemption arc. However, what really forces a redemption arc is when you um, come into conflict with the with the the fallout of, of your crimes when you account and it begin to atone atonement that's kind of the key you have to begin to like i said look stare your evil in the face stare your dark deeds in the face and begin to atone for them and so jamie facing stoneheart this will probably be a step in that direction because both his sins with bran and uh and you know failing to protect um you know the being partially responsible for the Red Wedding by way of Tywin and Roose Bolton saying Jamie Lannister sends his regards and all that stuff. So 
It's going to be a very interesting scene. It's going to be a lot of good writing. How about that? That's my prediction. There'll be a lot of good writing in that cave. <laughs> um, and Oathkeeper is going to come out of it. So I'm glancing back over now to see what you guys think of that scene. They'll need to convince Stoneheart that they have not broken their oaths. How would they do that, Bronhaler? They're going to need some sort of witness, aren't they? Who could be a witness to the deeds that, that Jamie has done? And, and Brienne, because Brienne doesn't have any cachet with Stoneheart either. Would Stoneheart be sympathetic if Jamie offered to take the black? Okay, there's a good thought, Karma Police. Um, yes, Brandon, Jamie did make the oath when he was drunk and in chains. I'm just talking about it as foreshadowing. And I think he still feels responsible, even though he was drunk. He still feels responsible for that oath. Could Brienne and Jamie head to the Vale if Sansa's presence there has been revealed? Oh, that'd be interesting. That'd be an interesting way to tie their plot back to the North. Maybe that's what they have to do to appease Stoneheart, is they have to go and protect Sansa. Uh, something like that. But it seems like maybe some time needs to pass. There needs to be more information that gets into that cave or other people that can testify to things. So it could be that Jamie and Brienne get, get thrown in, you know, they get imprisoned for a while down in the caves before anything happens. So uh, Guilty Undertaker points out that Jamie's whole journey through the Riverlands so far is him being confronted with his misdeeds and the misdeeds of his family, and he's basically choosing to look away. Will he look? So I, I, I mean, yeah, that's you. You make a great point, and so that's the logical place to take all this. Like, you know, if you're the the writer here, and you're shoving this character's face in their sins, and they're sort of like trying not to look at it. Well, it's just going to get worse and worse until they're forced to look. Right? Um, either that, or his continuing to turn away from that will take him in the opposite direction of a redemption arc, and he'll, you know. Become a bad guy again. And caves, of course, are used as symbols of rebirth, Carl Karsnark points out. So there should be different coming out of the cave when they went in. Yep. And also, so let's think about Jamie's dream, right? Jamie dreams of being under Casterly Rock in this weird watery grotto. Him and Brienne wield flaming swords. So they're now in a cave together, and Brienne has Oathkeeper. So maybe Oathkeeper will get lit on fire. That's where Beric's sword got lit on fire, too. The whole story's about towers and caves, John Isai says. Pretty much. The cave's under the tower, too. So, really, it's all part of the same setup. Either that or it's all about private parts, towers, and caves. Swords and sheaths. Yes. I'm tempted to do the finger motion, but I won't do it. I've done that too many times live on the internet. And I will also say that um, the other cool idea for who needs to give Stoneheart the gift of mercy and put her out of her misery would obviously be Arya, but Arya's got a ways to go before she gets back to Westeros. So what do you guys think? Is Stoneheart going to hold on that long to be killed by Arya, or will, uh, will, will Stoneheart come to her end with this confrontation with Jamie and Brienne that's coming? Uh, Rickon, you guys know what I think about Rickon. We can tell Rickon's story through emojis. It's all about the horny goats. But I think he's basically going to be a political pawn for the Mandalays or someone else, and his story will end tragically. But the significance of him will be basically as a political pawn. Uh, I would love to see some horny goats uh, in action. I've talked about the foreshadowing for Rickon being Varamir Sixkin's childhood, so it could be that Rickon's tale will end in a very dark and tragic way, but we'll have to see. Josh Thompson, what are you doing to me? After the 420 break, you're asking me about the fat pink mast and how it fits into the symbolism trifecta of comets, dragons, and flaming swords. Uh, from, a, from a burning tower, a stone beast took wing. 
<laughs> there you go. Grayscale. No, I'm stop. No, that's that's not what that means. No. Uh, the fat pink mast. No, I mean, it's just, you know, I pointed out many times, obviously, swords and impregnating penises are the same symbol. It's the, it's the linga, if you will, the linga symbol. So that's fat pink mast. That's basically the mast of a ship. That's like a tower. It's like a tree. Every long pointy thing is a penis, guys. I don't know what to say. It's all about, I mean, we laugh and chuckle, but what is sex about? It's about reproduction. It's about life begetting new life. And all the cycle of the season stuff, long night, spring coming again, it's all reproduction, you know, life and death cycle stuff. So, you know, we can laugh and make our jokes, but anytime you see all this, you know, impregnating reproductive symbolism, that's, that's what it's about. So, you know, George works on a lot of levels. He has his dick jokes, uh, but he also appreciates the more classic mythical sort of symbolism. I mean, that's why we build the damn... Washington monuments, you know, the obelisks everywhere. It's not because everyone is obsessed with the penis. I mean, kind of, yeah, patriarchy, but it's it's a representation of reproduction and of life. And I am making Dark Mother laugh, so I better stop. All right. Josh Thompson's like, wow, here I was shitposting and you get a real answer. Everything can be taken seriously and ridiculously, Josh. There's no separation. It's all part of the same thing. Yeah, Dark Mother, we're going to see horny goats, goddammit. Unicorns. I mean, George keeps talking about them in the interviews. He keeps mentioning, oh, well, I, I do have my version of unicorns, and they're, they're, they're goats with one horn. They're, going to... they're coming. They are coming. Sometimes a big pink mast is just a big pink mast, but mostly it's a penis. Sigmund Freud, probably. <laughs> Thanks, Carl Karsnack. No matter what I do, I can't lose this audience. I'm trying hard to, to, to tank this live stream, but you guys are sticking with me. You must like this stuff. All right, what else do I wanna talk about? Okay, so after I do those two King Brand videos, what am I doing next? Um, we're gonna be talking about Danny and Euron. Some of that stuff um, I've developed so heavily with Ball the Bard that it will be a little bit of a joint production. Uh, similarly, she's doing some new stuff on the Dance of the Dragons on her YouTube channel uh, coming up in the next few months. She's been thinking about Dance of the Dragons a ton and all the incredible parallels between Dance of the Dragons and the main story of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, a lot of the myth heads have been kicking that around, but Ball the Bard is uh, one of the ones who's been focusing on that a lot. And then they HBO went and announced House of the Dragon. So it's like, hey, time is now. Let's talk about the dance. So Ball the Bard is going to be doing a series of videos and essays about the dance and the parallels to the main story, and which is also going to lead into Endgame talk. So basically, we've been just workshopping and talking about the Endgame uh, because both of us feel strongly that uh, George's ending is going to be a lot more satisfying and in many ways very different from what we saw on the show. And we see people losing hope, and and it just it just it wounds our hearts. And so uh, all the a lot of all us myth heads uh, have been talking about this stuff, and so essentially. I've been, um, you know, I'll get some credit for some of the uh, Dance of the Dragons material that she's doing, and she'll get a healthy amount of credit when I talk about Euron and Daenerys, because we just have developed those ideas together, and they have a lot of overlap. So that's going to be really exciting. Um, I previewed some of the ideas earlier when I talked about Danny in the House of the Undying and how they symbolize the others trying to entrap Danny. That's going to be a, definitely a part of this. Um, so 
we're going to talk about Danny from all phases. I might do one essay just about her character, honestly, um, which is not what I usually do. I usually talk about mythology and symbolism, but um, Danny is probably my favorite character. She's the one that I identify with the most because let's face it, I'm a princess. Make your jokes. Uh, no, I just, there's other, you know, more important reasons uh, besides uh, me being a princess that I love Danny, but I just love how she, I just think her upbringing is so compelling and the way that she thinks about things deeply is very interesting to me. Like when she sits and reflects about, am I the mother of monsters? You know, what have I loosed upon the world? How do I rule justly? Will I make a thousand, you know, Hosea's not Hosea. What's the, I'm sorry. Who's the woman that she tries to save from rape? Uh, oh, I guess that's Miriam Asdor, wouldn't it be? Yeah. So she's talking about Hosea. She's talking about all these lessons and everywhere she goes, she's liberating people. She's using her power to stand up for the downtrodden. She walks out into the, you know, the crowd of plague infested people in Marine and gives them comfort over and over and over. She shows us her character, even while she also is a vengeful dragon and has that fire and blood inside of her. Aroa, I'm sorry. Yes, a thousand Aroas. That is the slave girl. I was that's the name I was looking for. Yes. So in any case, I might gosh, I've got it in my craw. The more I talk about it, I might do an episode that's basically just breaking down Danny's character in the books and trying to show how the ending that George does needs to be consistent with those, you know, with what he's shown us of her character and how what we saw on the show cannot be consistent with what we've seen of her character. I do think that she is a character that flirts with the dark side. And I do think that she's not going to be spotless and blameless. Uh, but the idea that she suddenly pivots into being a mass murderous homicidal maniac and uh, yeah, I'm just not buying it. So might do one of those. Uh, but of course, there's tons of Danny symbolism to talk about. And that's what I'll be focusing on. So you could probably expect, you know, three videos on all that stuff, at least. So that's what's coming for me soon. Uh, it's all pretty exciting, I, I would hope. Um, and then I'm sure I'll find my way into other corners of the ending of A Song of Ice and Fire to explore, you know, checking out the foreshadowing of the books and comparing it to what we saw on the show to try to guess where The Winds of Winter is coming. So basically all my videos between now and The Winds of Winter will be about what we expect to see in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. So like I've said, if you're... You know, the hype train for wins starts here. That's what we're doing. So, yes. If you have friends that are downtrodden and depressed after the bad show ending, give them some King Bran. See if, uh, you know, remind them how cool the books are. I, I pulled some of the very best book quotes in those videos, specifically because I just want, I feel like people, maybe it's been a while since they've reread re the books, and the words themselves have a real power. They have magic. George's phrasing is very special. And reading these passages again just reminds you how much fun A Song of Ice and Fire is. So lots of enthusiasm to be had. Lots of pep talks coming from me. And please do check out uh, the Patreon if you uh, are inclined to support Mythical Astronomy. Uh, Dark Mother's dropping the link in the chat. Thank you, DM. And yeah, Danny is kind of in a hell dimension, isn't she, in Meereen? I'm, I'm very curious to see how her whole thing in Vase Dothrak ends and then how she works back to Marine. So I'm looking forward to that. D, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I'm glad I'm seeing some Danny love in the chat. Thank you. Love it. Love it. And yes, as many have said, the 
the person who goes crazy when they hear the bells is probably going to be John Kahn. And so, you know, there's some interesting timeline questions. The timeline that I favor is Danny comes back to Westeros, or no, I'm sorry. First thing that happens is Fagon takes King's Landing from Cersei, because you can see the writing on the wall there. Uh, Fagon is the mummer's dragon who's greeted by a cheering crowd in Danny's vision. So he should be welcomed as a, as a, you know, he should be welcomed for a little while as when he becomes king, Cersei's, her rule is bad and getting worse. So he's going to come with, you know, a lot of Westerosi uh, loyalists in the Stormlands and the, their friends in the Reach and an alliance with the Martells probably. So then you've got Fagon and King's Landing. Danny will probably have some brief negotiation with Fagon. Danny will be tormented by the idea that maybe this is a, a lost relative, Rhaegar's son. I don't know if she will learn the truth of Fagon's identity or not. That's assuming Fagon is fake, which we don't know for sure. Uh, but eventually, I think they will fight, and the dance of the dragons, you know, meaning two rival Targaryens, will happen. And we'll get Danny taking King's Landing from Fagon. I suspect this is where the wildfire will go off, uh, but that could happen later. And essentially, what will happen is there'll be just too much collateral damage, way more than Danny anticipated. She'll feel horrible about it. She'll be branded as, you know, as a, a mad queen, and she'll have to fight against that uh, impression. But I think then what she'll do at some point is that she'll turn north to face the others. So I don't know if she'll take King's Landing from Fagon and then turn north, or if she'll fight, not take it, and then turn north. But I believe that there will be a King's Landing event first. I believe then Danny will go north. And then I believe after the Long Night is dealt with, you'll have Cersei who's, by the way, hanging out in Casterly Rock, I think, after Fagon takes King's Landing. You have Cersei slinking back to King's Landing while everyone is up north, very much like Saruman slinking back to the Shire. And so the scouring of the Shire parallel will make a lot more sense now because there's already been a climactic King's Landing battle between Danny and Fagon. Uh, the Citadel's already probably, not the Citadel, but Sept of Baelor, will already have been destroyed sometime in that, maybe when Fagon takes the city from Cersei. Um, you know, so by the time Cersei goes back to King's Landing at the end, this really will be a slinking, it really will be like a noticeable step down from the confrontation between Danny and the others. And that's kind of one of the weird things about the show is that they played up the Cersei and Danny thing to be equal or even a higher of a climax than the Long Night confrontation which to me doesn't really work because the whole theme of the book is that the High Lords are quabbling for the throne and ignoring the greater threat of the others. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's this is my proposed timeline. So the Skyring of the Shire is like the final showdown against Cersei when Danny comes back. And I think, I mean, Danny's got to end up probably dying somewhere in that mix uh, because if, I mean, if Bran's going to be king, it's it's pretty obvious that, that Danny can't be alive. And even if John doesn't stab Danny, I think probably Danny dies. Um, so the question will be, how does she die, um, and by who, and how does that go down? But you know, you can see the the approximate path there. So I see two battles at King's Landing instead of one. That's one of the major changes, and uh, we'll develop those ideas further. Let me just scan the chat, see if there's any more comments here that I'm going to grab, and then I'll probably be getting out of here. Danny is not the Mummer's Dragon. Definitely not. Greenhand is wrong about that. I would bet my wig on it. 
Uh, and no, Ashtoreth's Treeborn son, Phagon might not be Targaryen. He might be Blackfire, which is kind of Targaryen, but he could also be a Pisswater Prince from Lys. That's also in, uh, in play too, so don't forget that possibility. But yes, other than that, I mean, yeah, Dragonblood, Blackfire, Targ. Yeah, no, I agree. Blackfire and Targ, same thing. That's just a, that's just a reverse sigil. Same deal. Uh, let's see. Imagine if Stannis had a dragon and found out Renly was fake. Ah, yes. So, yeah, Fagon being exposed as fake kind of makes sense to me, too. Because if, if Danny thinks he's real, then she's going to want to ally with him. Uh, but she, she has that mummer's dragon prophecy to tip her off that he could be fake. Uh, so how do you guys think that Danny could find that out? How, how could, F assuming Fagon is Fagon uh, and he's not Rhaegar's son, how could that truth come out, do you think? Do we peel Varys' toenails off one at a time or what? Sheila, probably not. I don't tend to ag agree with Greenhand's logic, especially where it concerns Danny and her parentage. I, I'm a thousand percent sure that Danny doesn't have a secret parentage. And I am thousand percent sure that RLJ is true. I God bless all of you, you know, uh, John Dane truthers. I, I don't hate y'all. I do see the logic behind the theory. I think it's a reasonable theory. I don't think anyone's stupid for thinking that it's true, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not into that sort of thing. However, I personally am sold on RLJ, and I don't think there's any curve coming there where she's not who she thinks she is. Or anything like that, but I mean, it's a book. You can, you know, everybody has their idea. So, uh, but Greenhand specifically, I almost never agree with them. I just don't. Um, we just have different logic that we employ. I'll say it that way. And they are. They love being contrarian. I don't like contrarianism. Uh, I like entertaining. Uh, I count contrary ideas, but if they don't hold up to logic, then I don't like them for contrarian's sake. Uh, some people do. Yeah. Yeah. John Dane truthers. I say that with love. Anytime I call somebody a truther, it's tongue in cheek. You know, like I said, I don't, I don't disrespect anybody for for liking far-fetched theories. I've got a few far-fetched theories that I like myself, so it's all good. Some people would consider my basic theory to be very far-fetched. So there you go. All right. So any final questions before we wrap it up? Uh, what would you? Let me ask you. Let me ask you guys a question. What would you like to see me cover besides finishing the King Bran and besides the Danny Euron stuff? What parts of the ending of A Song of Ice and Fire would you like me to turn my mirrored reflective gaze to and try to hash out? Do you think Westeros is in a time loop? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think that's mostly symbolism of time being a circle. Although I do recommend the show Dark and our sick podcast youtube channel ball the bard and i we watch dark we like dark dark is awesome let's see here so yeah uh what impact will john's death have on his fate ah yes i should revisit that topic i talked about that in the green zombies series you know john's gonna be a wolf man john's gonna have ghost spirit inside of him resurrected skin changer uh but definitely uh definitely think there's some strong clues that cold hands John is a reality based on the ending we saw in the show where he's wandering the north. So yeah, I could definitely do some cold hands John. Okay, House Dane, that's another good one. House Dane is completely minimized in the show. So what will House Dane and I'd probably expand that to the Great Empire of the Dawn and House Hightower. 
what will they, you know, will any of that interesting lore come up in the story? That's a good idea. Thanks, Justin. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah, Fire and Blood is going to be, like I said, Ball the Bard will have that one covered. Isle of Faces, yep. Uh, well, I'll probably get into that in my last two brand videos. Guilty Undertaker, more about the Direwolves. Did you check out King Brand 1? I definitely talked a fair amount about it then. About skin changing and the importance of green seeing magic at the end. Mm, yep, okay, Brandon Blackfire talking about John coming back to life. God's Eye. Essos. Do you think Essos will be completely screwed when the others launch their invasion? I don't even know if we'll find out, but that is a good question. I mean, the, the original Long Night seems to have fallen in Essos as well, but I think the story is basically going to be back in Westeros by that time. So, <laughs> more about penises. Of course, D. Fear not. You can't talk about a song of ice and fire without mentioning penises once in a while, especially if you're talking about Lightbringer. Yes, Asherah's trueborn son, could John's resurrection combine with either the moon meteors, some sort of new moon catastrophe with a burning of Shireen? Absolutely. Um, in fact, if you go to Blood of the Other, Asherah's trueborn son, not sure if you've done that one yet, but the Blood of the Other series, there's one called um, Ice Moon Apocalypse. I believe that's number five. And all the foreshadowing of the ice moon exploding, the wall falling, and John's resurrection is like this, except for there's three of them. So it's, it's like, oh, that's making naughty hands gestures again. Sorry, mom. Um, they're intertwined. Let's use the word intertwined and say that uh, if there is a meteor attack, that's how the new long night will fall, which means that's how the wall is going to fall. And I do think John's resurrection could be timed to coincide with those events. Yes, uh, that would be... Wow, that'd be just great. Sheila Hilton with the super chat. Thank you. Can't wait for your Danny vids. I bet you will agree that Danny lost her way in Marine uh, temporarily. I'm excited for her return. Well, yeah. So she, the thing is, she's constantly dancing on this razor's edge. She's an avenging dragon, but she's also the Misa, the mother figure. And Quaithe is all like, dragons don't plant trees. But actually, Danny does plant trees in Marine. So. Danny is a tree-planting dragon. What does that mean? She's a mother goddess and an avenging dragon. And I believe that with the important characters, it's always about synthesizing these sort of conflicting, hardened-conflict elements. It's about synthesizing them as much as possible. And so when you say that Danny lost her way, I'm not sure exactly in what sense you mean that. Um, I think that she was trying to follow the rules of you break it, you bought it, essentially, which is somewhat responsible uh but it's you know it's possible that we could see if she comes back to marine and tries to clean it up a little bit before she leaves it's possible that you could see a preview for the transition away from monarchy and westeros where danny attempts to i mean like she did in i believe it was young kai set up a council of people to rule wisely when she leaves didn't go well the first time perhaps it'll go better in marine Maybe she'll just make a King Dario and leave, like in the show. But that seems a little lackluster. So we will have to see. Uh, I do think that Danny basically has to blend those two things. So that's the key. Josh Thompson is asking about uh, the houses that were cut out of the show. Uh, you know, Blackwood, Stain, stuff like that. So that's definitely a good one. And yep, well, it looks like we're at two hours. I'm off the hook, guys. I did go two hours. Yes. 
do it all for you. Do it all for you. So thanks for coming out, guys. And I will see you again soon. Uh, one note, I am um, moving again this month. Uh, I don't really want to go into detail, but I am going to be busy. So it's possible that it might be a little bit of a delay between my next uh, like highly edited video. Uh, I might try to um, have a couple of discussion live streams in the meantime to sort of keep the com content coming. I might do the kind of thing where instead of like a Q&A like this, uh, I'll get together with one other person like Quinn or someone else and we'll, you know, pick a topic, do a little bit of an outline. So it'll be a live stream, but not just sort of like a anything goes live stream, but rather a presentation of ideas. Uh, but like I said, um, I don't know that I'll be have, having time this month to stare at Adobe Premiere for a week and a half of uh, video editing because it does take a lot of time. So. I will do something. I will keep material coming, believe me. Um, and yes, Fear Inoculum is amazeballs. So thank you for your continued support. And I will see you again soon with something. And in the meantime, please, everybody, share the King Brand series far and wide. I uh, really need everybody to see this series. And, and like I said, inhale the T-Wow hype, you know, chase out the bad, spell the bad taste. Exhale, expel, and breathe in the T-Wow hype. And uh, it all starts right here. So like I said, share those videos, get other people into it, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll wait for T-Wow together in excitement. So enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and I'll see you again soon, guys. Bye-bye.